Hi, how are you today? I'm very glad to be with you today. We're going to look at some scripture. Perhaps we've never met. If so, let me tell you my name. I'm Wayne Kent. It's my privilege to be part of the pastoral team at First Christian Church. And so as we look at scripture today, may I suggest you go and grab a Bible and something to make some notes on it. And while you're kind of scurrying about, maybe start thinking about that we'll have communion together in just a few moments. So maybe something to drink and some bread or some crackers would be a good idea. Thank you for inviting me into your home and taking some time together. May I suggest also that we do all we can today for the next few minutes to kind of lose the distractions. I'm aware that as I'm here in my office uh, here today, that I'm coming into a lot of homes where there are different settings. There are some settings where there's five or six people in the house, families together, parents and kids. Maybe there are some empty nesters and it's just two of you. And in some settings, the sense of isolation is even greater, greatly more increased because um, you're a single person. But I'm thankful that we have technology that we come together as one church. Before we look at scripture, I do want to say this. Uh, thank you for your prayers for me in recent weeks. Perhaps you're aware that uh, uh, a few weeks ago I ended up with some unexpected surgery on my knee. And uh, I, I want to thank you for your prayers for me as I've continued to experience what's uh, the recovery for all of that. The staff have done a great job covering my responsibilities in the last few weeks. And uh, I've, I've been thrilled to see how everything's come together for us to come into your home on a regular basis. As a staff, we meet on a regular, we do meet on a regular basis as well. Um, frankly, every few days via Zoom in our homes. And uh, you may recall that last week uh, we had a birthday among us, namely Lori Putnam had her birthday. And on our Zoom meeting, we tried to uh, have this wonderful moment where we sang happy birthday to her. And it wasn't so, well... It lacked a little finesse. So this past week then, it was Lacey Phillips birthday and we said, okay, we're gonna do it better. And we're gonna sing happy birthday to her as well. And Thomas Hagen suggested, Wayne, uh, why don't you direct us? Why don't you swing your arms around and uh, we'll see how this goes. And so we tried again and um, you can be the judge as to whether or not we actually grew as a staff in, a, in our ability to, uh, Sing happy birthday to one of our members. Take a look at this. I think that was a good idea, Wayne. We got to follow okay. Wayne. Follow Wayne. We need here's your, the last we're recording. Here's your should pitch. be at the piano, Wayne. Mm -hmm. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. That's no better than last week. That was so much better. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Ugh. It was a bit rough, wasn't it? I hope, it's probably because of my directing was just not where it needed to be. I trust it's not a representation of the musical abilities of our staff. This weekend, Palm Sunday, is a weekend when most churches around the world have a lot of music involved in their worship services. It's our practice and tradition here at First Christian Church that each worship service on Palm Sunday weekend starts with the children um, 
walking into our worship centers, into our auditoriums, and uh, waving palm branches. It's, it's the beginning. Maybe you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about when I say Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the uh, beginning of Jesus' Passion Week when uh, he arrives in Jerusalem and all is well. Everybody's all excited. The mood in the city is great. And uh, people actually are waving branches and thrilled to see him. And so we start our week weekend services uh, with the kids, the little ones coming in with palm branches and get us off to this great, uh, great way in which we can say we are going to um, declare the glory of the Lord and declare that Jesus Christ has arrived. Sadly, uh, in the days that followed, uh, it didn't go so well. See, the people in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus arrived in the city, they were expecting a lot. This was the culmination of his ministry tour, and they're expecting something really cool, and it's all found in Mark chapter 11. If you read, would read Mark 11 with me, please. Let's read together. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks why you're doing this, say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. So that's what they did. They went and they found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And this is where the, the people are waving palm branches. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Verse 11, we read this, that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. And he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So we have this scene where there's this great joy in the city. You know why? The people think that Jesus, who's been on this ministry tour for a long time, he's coming into Jerusalem and he's actually going to overthrow the occupying Roman army. Now we know, because we can see in hindsight, that that's not what happened. But in the moment, that's what was, that was what they were expecting. Our children in our church always love this weekend because they, they get to wave the palm branches. They get to sing, the, they sing the same song every year, Hosanna, ho, ho, Hosanna. And uh, our family ministries team have been working with all the kids in all their various homes this past week, uh, showing them how they can make branches like this one. And uh, I want you, kids, this is your moment right now. I want you to go get your branch. If you don't have a branch, you didn't perhaps have a chance to make it, then go to the kitchen and get a kitchen towel because we're going to wave it and we're going to sing and dance. And you're going to see some of the things that, well, you've, you've seen some of this video before, some of this uh, song. And so for, throughout the next few moments, we're inviting all the children who normally would do this in the worship service inside in the sanctuaries, uh, inside the auditoriums of our church this time. We're going to invite you to do it in your living room, in the bedroom, wherever you are you're watching today. And let's together declare that Jesus Christ is coming by saying, Hosanna, ho Hosanna, wave your, wave your arms, wave your branches, wave your towel, whatever the case may be. And let's declare that Jesus Christ has come into our lives together.
So the way in which the children of our church have just kind of danced around and waved their towels or their branches is really indicative of what it was like in the city when Jesus arrived. But as the day goes along, he leaves the city, goes about two miles outside the city to a little village called, called Bethany, spends the night there, and he comes back into the city the next day. And this is where the stage is set in many ways for Jesus' execution, which is coming in just a couple of days. I want you to read with me from Mark chapter 11 again in a very different scene than what we just read a few minutes ago. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. So he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So we'll, we'll have to kind of leave that moment for another time. But moving on, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began doing something which was very unusual. He began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So, so let me describe this scene that we've just uh, read about. We've chatted in the past that at Passover in Jerusalem, there was this expectation that if you were part of the Jewish faith, if you were Jewish by blood or Jewish by conversion, that at least one time in your life, no matter where you lived around the Mediterranean basin, you would journey to Jerusalem and spend, spend Passover in Jerusalem. It was, if you will, it was a spiritual pilgrimage. Now, that involved a lot of cost. You think about, it, for some people, it would take days to get there and uh, they'd have to travel, they'd have to walk, they'd have to bring their stuff with them. And um, they would be coming to Jerusalem so that they could be in Jerusalem at this highest moment in Jewish uh, worship, in Jewish life, in the Jewish calendar. They would be in Jerusalem for worship on Passover. So this scene that we've just looked at where Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, it is just days before the Passover, just a couple days. and. Um, if pilgrims were coming from all around the world to come and worship there, there was an expectation that they would come and they would offer gifts to the temple authorities and to the, the running of the temple, if you will. So they would bring money and they would also bring animals to be sacrificed. But there was a problem in that because uh, all of the nation and all the nations around them are all run by the Romans. It's the time of the Roman Empire and so the money is um, all bears the, the, the image of the present Caesar. And that was a problem for the people in the temple because the temple authorities said, well, the Romans consider that person, they consider him to be a god. We think that's a false god. god. We say that that's pagan. And they didn't want any coins in the temple treasury that were pagan, legitimately, because they said we won't ever be people of idolatry. So you understand that. And so uh, beyond that, if you, so you show up and you've got coins from some other country that have got uh, Caesar's face on it, 
and you want to give some money, how are you going to do that? And you want to have an animal, but it's real hard to bring an animal a long distance and travel with animals for a long day. So as you arrive at the temple, there are all these booths, we'd call them vendors these days, set up in the courtyard of the temple. And as you're going into worship, you would take your Roman coinage and change it for some, um, for some temple coinage, and you'd buy an animal. And the problem was the vendors... This was the way in which they made money, and it was, they had exorbitant prices. How would we think of it in our day and time? We'd think, okay, you, you go into a major league baseball game, and you want to buy a jersey. What do you do? You figure out it's cheaper to buy the jersey before you get in the stadium, right? And you go to Walmart and buy your, buy your jersey there because it's going to be three times the, the price inside the stadium. Or you go, I want a hot dog, and you could get a hot dog for about 45 cents at Sam's. But if you buy the hot dog in the stadium, it's thirteen seventy-five, and that doesn't include ketchup. So, so this is kind of the same thing that was taking place outside the temple. And it, so consequently, you got all this business and all this noise, this unscrupulous gouging of these pilgrims. And it by no means led to any atmosphere of worship. Or prayer. In fact, what's happening is the people who have m traveled all these distances and they've put up a bunch of money to get there, they have to run through this maze, this gauntlet of booths and animals and vendors to get to prayer. And it was exactly the opposite of what God had designed the temple to be. In fact, I want you to take a look at this photo. Now, this photo, the wall that you see there on the left, is, was not there during the ancient times. Uh, but these, were the these are the steps that led up to the Temple Mount. You, they, they lead up there today, even here in the 21st century. And the engineers of the ancient world did something quite dramatic. They built and, and designed those steps so that your gate, you can't run, you can't run at them because they're, they're, the width of them and the rise in them, it, it, it forces you to pause and slow down. And so Jesus shows up in this place that's supposed to be, it doesn't have to be quiet, but it's not supposed to be just raucous. And Jesus shows up and realizes this is not a good setting for prayer whatsoever. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. So you can picture the scene in your head, I suspect, uh, of, of the scene that Jesus has created. He's not pleased at all with everything that's going on. And as he's overturning tables, the animals are getting loose. The coins are rolling everywhere. People are kind of afraid because who is this guy that's coming just upset 
upset the apple cart, if you could put it that way. Well, this is the Son of God showing righteous anger. This is not Jesus, some meek and mild that we like sometimes to think of him as. No, this is Jesus with divine anger. He's making a very potent statement about the temple. He says the temple is for worship. The temple is not for money gouging and for disorder. The temple is for prayer. That's the scene. And I think it begs the question, how does this apply to us this week? How does this apply to you or me? Or um, how does this apply to our church? The reality is that um, I I'm in need of prayer this week. You're in need of prayer this week. In the midst of the chaos of this COVID-19 stuff, and I, I sometimes feel like going through, through each day is like walking through the booths outside the temple, walking through the vendors because there, there are booths set up. And you know what? I'd call them worry booths. They are, they are, there's this onslaught of information, this onslaught of statistics, and it's very hard in the midst of this present setting to get quiet and to say, okay, God, I want to pray. How do we do that? Well, maybe a lesson from Judaism might help us in this regard. Uh, outside the doors, or outside on, on the outside of, of, I would say for the most part, most Jewish homes, on the right-hand side, there's a small little, well, it's called a mezuzah. It's a small fixture that uh, you, you could see, as I said, on, on the door of most Jewish homes that might give us a little bit of understanding of how we can manage the chaos of the present time and all the trying to make our way through all these worry booths. In order to help you understand a little bit about that, um, I want you to watch a video that will give you a description of what this mezuzah looks like and what it's used for. And this is from our friends at myjewishlearning.com. you to understand is that for Jewish people, that mezuzah outside their house, on the doorframe of their home, is a reminder for them and for all who enter that God is honored in this house, that God's law and consequently God's presence is here. So keep that in mind. Keep, keep, hold that thought, if you may, because uh, I want to see how it relates to those of us who are Christians with a story from the early church about how the people of Jewish, Jewish faith, Judaism, how they would say, okay, God's presence is here, and it's, it's, it's identified 
through what we have on the outside of our house. Well, there's a story in the early church that um, is parallel, in, at least in my head. Uh, it's a story that probably not many people pay a lot of attention to. It focuses on a fellow of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was, uh, we would say, the leading theologian of the early church, certainly the leading theologian of the New Testament. And uh, not only was he a theologian, but he was a traveling evangelist. He would go from town to town, city to city, country to country, in fact, and tell people about Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 19, he lands in a city called the city of Ephesus. And it's, he has a powerful ministry there. And in the midst of his powerful ministry, he has a very unusual practice that catches most of us a little bit off guard. Read with me from Acts chapter 19, beginning at verse 8. He entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of the people who were listening didn't really like what, is, what he had to say, and they became obstinate. They refused to believe, and in their unbelief, they publicly maligned the way. The way is the, the, um, the description that was given to people who followed Jesus. They were known as people of the way. So Paul left them. He leaves the synagogue, and he took, he took the uh, disciples with him, and they had discussions daily in the lecture hall now. So they moved from the synagogue, and they moved over to the hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And this powerful ministry has a unique way uh, that the presence and the power of God is demonstrated. You see it in verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him, catch this, handkerchiefs and aprons, the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to, their, to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So I don't know that you've ever looked at that passage of scripture a whole lot. It's sort of, who are we kidding? It's, do we say the word weird? I don't know if I want to use that word, but it certainly is unusual. It's not something we practice, right? I mean, but if you think about weird or odd, isn't communion in and of itself sort of odd? I mean, if you were an outsider outside the body of Christ and you walked into a church and they said, we're, we're going we're gonna to remember someone's death by eating and drinking, wouldn't that seem at first glance to be a little bit odd? We don't consider it odd because we're used to it. We've, if, if we become the followers of Jesus Christ, it seems very natural and real to us. But why is it that we would think then that this practice of aprons or handkerchiefs might be a little bit weird. Well, maybe we could put it all together this way, with this understanding, that God wants his temple, God wants his people to be people of prayer, that we need to find ways in which we can tangibly manage that in the midst of trying to make our way through the chaos of the booths of worry and the vendors that are on our TV that are pushing stuff at us all the time that says we need to be concerned about this COVID, which we do, I get it. Um, may I suggest you do this? Why don't you go to the kitchen and grab a towel or a handkerchief. I've got a bandana here. got a towel. It's in my office all the time. It's a long story why it's here, but it's from my office. Or maybe you want to take the palm branch that your kids 
made earlier if you've got the little ones in the house. And uh, we're going to hold these things, and we're going to make them, if you will, a... Uh, a well, I, I want to be careful that you don't in any way think that I'm trying to make idols or relics. Uh, no, that's not the point. But just as the mezuzah in a Jewish household, on a Jewish on the doorframe of a Jewish home, says that God's presence is here, who are we kidding? We need some moments. We need some understanding. This is the way in which I remember that God's presence is here. That for Paul, they actually took these and they placed them on people, and people were healed, and they understood that. This wasn't where God's presence was, but it was the symbol of God's work and God's presence. And so I want us to do this as the people of First Christian Church this week. Let's grab these things that are worth just pennies. We're not making them holy. We're going to pray, and then we're going to leave them in our home this week. Put them in a place where we're going to be reminded, as the Jewish pe people are reminded by seeing that mezuzah. We're going to be reminded that the presence of God is here. That for some people, you're in homes today where there's a lot of activity because of the kids and so forth. For some, and you're feeling like this, but for others, it might be a case that you're, you're in isolation completely by yourself. And you know, man, I'm so alone. Well, as we hold these things today, go and get it right now. Get one, something like this. I'm going to pray with you, and I'm going to pray that every time you see these objects this week, that you'll be reminded that God is indeed in the center of your home. That, as Jesus said, I want my temple to be a place of prayer, a place where God's presence is recognized and seen and experienced. We're going to pray that we are reminded daily that God's presence and God's care is found in our homes. Would you pray with me, please, friends? Father, we're holding in our hands um, objects that are not holy. They're common, everyday things, like towels and handkerchiefs, bandanas, maybe even palm branches. But we are reminded that um, just as Paul had these handkerchiefs or aprons that were touched by him and they were somehow rather communicate to people that God's presence was around, uh, in the ordinary stuff, God, in the ordinary stuff of life, in the, in the making of meals, in the, in the um, daily routines, in the concerns about who's going out of the house to buy the groceries and how are we doing that, and the regular stuff of life, Lord, like this stuff. May this stuff remind us, as regular as it is, that you are indeed in the midst of our homes that we are people of prayer, that we are a people, God, who can make our way through the maze of the vendors of worry. And Lord, we will experience you this week. I pray specifically, Lord, for the houses and the homes, Lord, where there's a lot of people in there. It feels chaotic at moments. I pray, God, that there be some peace there. For the houses and homes, and Lord, that are represented at First Christian Church of where the isolation is particularly acute because there's only one person there. In either extreme, Lord, may your presence be found in a powerful way. And as we look at these items of little value this week, may we be reminded of the great value we have 
through the presence of Jesus Christ within our lives, the work of your Holy Spirit among us, and God, that you are among us and that we are indeed the people of prayer, not the people of chaos and the vendors of worry, but instead, we are your people this week. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, uh, this passage in Mark chapter 11 that we've, reviewed, that we've looked at today, it points out that Jesus wanted his house, his people, to be people of prayer. I want to say that that's the story of our congregation, that we are people of prayer. And that's why throughout this worship service, you've heard a variety of different prayers from people representing the congregation, and you'll hear some more yet before the service is through. And... Um, to kind of put a cap or, uh, if you will, a, an exclamation point behind it all, I'd like you to hear uh, a passage of Scripture that is one of my favorite. It's from Hebrews chapter 4. It talks about how we can approach this business of prayer and expect God to be engaged. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It says that the followers of Jesus Christ, uh, the people who are supposed to be people of prayer, according to Jesus, we can approach God's throne of grace, this throne where God that, that's full of grace gifts, we can approach that full of confidence. And it says that we will discover and receive and find grace to help us in our time of need. We're going to see if we can help you do that this weekend, particularly. Uh, not just with these objects that you have at the house, and you're going to be reminded of God's presence throughout the coming days. But this weekend, Sunday, April the 5th at 8 o'clock, we're going to have a prayer service. So what we're going to do is Leslie and I are going to be in our home. We would invite you to go to the church's website, and, uh, or, and you can click on the, the event there, or you can go to the church's Facebook, uh, Facebook account. And we're going to do a prayer service from our home, leading you and the entire congregation in prayer uh, at 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock Sunday evening. It's hopefully by that time, if you've got little ones, uh, the little ones will be in bed or certainly quieted down, and you'll be able to spend just a few minutes with us uh, looking at just if you will, experiencing the presence of God together again as a congregation. We'll gather around our, our family piano and we'll do some music and we'll also, as I said, the focus will be to pray and ask God to cover us and carry us through the coming days. So God's grace and peace be with you today. And I'll look forward to seeing you Sunday evening, 8 o'clock. God bless you. I'll see you then.